Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwalt with a little note about today's episode. This is the first installment of the Ink Stained Wretches interview. And our first subject is a good one, Ben Smith, who we didn't know it, but when we recorded this last week was about to become the former media writer for the New York Times. We didn't, of course, know it, and we didn't have a chance to ask him lots of questions that we would have about his new startup, but it's a great talk anyway. I hope you'll enjoy it. Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. This is the Ink Stained Wretches interview. We are thrilled to be joined today by New York Times media columnist and the former editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News, Ben Smith. Ben, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me on. Ben, starting off with a total softball question. But yeah, who are you? Where did you grow up? How did you get into journalism? Let's see. I am a uh, 45-year-old Brooklyn dad. Yikes. Uh, I grew up in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Where did you, I, you go know, to high school? I went to a high school called Trinity. It was on the high school I'm paper. familiar. Ben went to an elite New York City high school. Okay. It was... um. For a high school called Trinity, it was it was very Jewish, as as am I for a person named yeah. Smith. And I for and... a person named Johnson. I was gonna say I got a Smith and a Johnson, yes. <laughs> Jewish people who went to Christian school. Okay, please yeah. proceed. To 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 digress a little bit, I um met not that long ago with a with a Chinese diplomat who was very as many Chinese diplomats are very sophisticated about American media. Um and it was a meeting with a bunch of journalists. And at some point, as meetings with journalists often do, it devolved into us um making Jewish jokes to each other because many of us were Jewish. And at some point, this Chinese diplomat says, you know, I, I've noticed that there are a lot of Jews in American journalism. Do you all ever like meet up and coordinate things? <laughs> and it was in, to in pure, total innocence. I was like, ah, I need to explain to you some things about, you know. We only anyway. need to control the weather, you told him. We can we yeah. control the weather and See, the space lasers. The, the Chinese are like what I think of as like the good kind of anti-Semites where they like believe all of the tropes about the Jews, but they think they're wonderful. So they, like, they really have no, admire you know, the Jews. Yeah, they have no Jews, but the they're shelves of business books of you know business secrets of the jews in chinese bookstores <laughs> anyway that's <laughs> so now that we've edited that part out i don't think i ever really picked another profession was a summer intern in fact at the jewish forward during college and loved it just loved reporting how loved did you end news. up there the editor was a guy named seth lipsky there were a gazillion interns it was, it was back in the days of unpaid internships but they would pay you per story so there was a lot of incentive to produce. And I just loved covering politics, actually. Upper West Side politics. First person I covered was Eric Schneiderman in a nice. very bitter race for um, for uh, state Senate on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, in which like the key oppo dump was the allegation that he was not, in fact, Jewish. <laughs> um, but if Wait, he was not Jewish, he was no, not Jewish and has not said he's Jewish, but does occasionally go to it was, I think, going to synagogue sometimes. Schneiderman seems to lean into some Hebraicness, doesn't big, it? Big company called Germany. Yeah, like, that's names true. like that. That's true. Big country. Ben, um, so wait, let me so stop you case, there really quickly. Yeah. Uh, you and I. This both is the Hanukkah are, podcast, right? <laughs> you, <laughs> are we late? You and, you and I both are work for Seth Lipsky at the New York Sun. But tell us a little bit about Seth and what what it was like working for him. You know, Seth was a great newspaper editor, is a great newspaper editor who um, who I learned a lot from before I became an editor. I went for a walk with him across the Brooklyn Bridge and picked his brain. I His politics are, to me, you know, like wild-eyed lunatic right wing. So my you know, politics everyone, are very all your listeners, his politics. All, all, no, that, all your listeners should awesome. go and all your listeners should go and sign up immediately for his for his newsletter. But he uh he, he'd been the edit an editor, he'd been the foreign editor of the Wall Street Journal. He'd been a correspondent for the journal and then a foreign editor and then um and then had been um on the editorial page of the journal before becoming editor of the Sun. And he would I believe his the only question he would ask in a job interview was 
are you a communist? And then, it, but he meant with like a big C. And so if you said, well, I'm pretty left wing, but you know, no, are you a member of the communist party? And if, so his staff tended to be like, you know, like many journalists sort of spread around the center left. And he was really mostly interested in scoops. Like what he wanted was scoops. And the two things I really learned from him was just like, get scoops and then just like defend your reporters to the hilt. Like if you got a scoop and you got into some sort of scrap with somebody over it, he would be writing unsigned editorials. He'd be commissioning columnists. He'd be like, just go to, he would just go to war over if, if somebody attacked his reporters in a that's way that the was best, really That's the best incredible. way to be. That's the best way. Yeah. And, and that's really what we're, as, as, as journalists, we're asking for from our bosses, and we hope we are as bosses, is that creates the space where people can take risks and do good stuff, right? Ben, yeah, and can publish tough stories, yeah. Are there a couple times in your career that you, uh, that you called that to mind, like defending your people? Oh, sure. I mean, when I was at BuzzFeed, I just felt like, I mean, the impulse to shoot the messenger is just so strong right now on Twitter that, you know, any story, people immediately assume the worst motives of the individual journalist and attack her or him, like, you know, just in a, over, in a way that can be overwhelming. And so I always felt like, you know, both on the website and on Twitter, like my job would be to be like, no, attack me, first of all. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I made the ultimately like I, it was my call to publish this, not this person's and, you know, explain a bit sometimes, right? Like you don't need to assume the worst motives and actually occasionally, you know, occasionally a story gets sucked into politics that really doesn't belong there and the and, and is being totally misinterpreted. Um, yeah, I want to ask you about the Steele dossier where I feel like this is the case. Uh, I was thinking about, um, well, that, I think about that one, but I, I was actually thinking about a story about Chip and Joanna Gaines at, at HGTV. Tell okay. us about this. In which I this, love this great already. and great entertainment reporter of ours, Kate Arthur, wrote a piece, had been sick and seriously ill and been in the hospital doing nothing other than watching Chip and Joanna Gaines and wrote a piece that was like pretty personal and basically about how much she loved them. And she's a lesbian. And in that context, writes about how she's like, you know, she's sort of wrestling with the fact that they go to a church that isn't welcoming to gay people or where the pastor has said something. And this gets sort of interpreted into Washington as BuzzFeed has attacked the church of the two most beloved, mm -hmm. you know, television figures in America, which wasn't unreasonable. And through the lens that like a Washington read of that story gave you that, but it was like, it was just the most uncharitable possible approach to this story by like, that was basically like a piece of fan fiction almost about them. Right. You know, like, and so I don't know. It just, so that was one where I felt like she, you know, we and she got the shit beat out of us for it in a way that I thought was, you know, both understandable and, and pretty frustrating. And I remember trying to just like make sure that she didn't bear the brunt of it because like she'd written it in such kind of good faith. That was one. Yes. The Steel Dossier was another. Uh, ben, let's backtrack. I took you off kind of the how did you end up in journalism? But uh, so, you were, you went to Yale. Did you do undergraduate Jeez, journalism? I'm on here with two Yaleys, two uh, Gentile last name, Jewish Yaleys. I'm, That's I'm actually totally... the only way they let you in. <laughs> There's a, it's how you get around the Jewish quota. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I went, to, I went to like the organizational meeting of the Yale Daily News and was really intimidated by like how intense those kids Me were. Me too. I was like, I can't do this. And I left like halfway through the meeting. Me and uh, <laughs> And then- wound up writing a bit for a publication called The New Journal and kept inter kept working for the Jewish Forward as well through college. How did you end up at Politico? I had been in New York. I'd worked for the New York Sun when Seth started it in 01 and then, uh, you know, I guess it launched in 02 and then covering City Hall and then for the New York Observer and for the New York Daily News. And it started a couple of, like it basically spent the 04 election reading political blogs, reading Andrew Sullivan and Drudge and Josh Marshall and this like, small little world of like mostly guys blogging about you know, who are just like giving you content through the day among other things like you, you know you were just sort of sitting on the internet looking for stuff to read yes yeah, so i had a little little kid and maybe i was like scrolling you know it's so boring you will find that this eliana that twitter is like the only thing that keeps you sane is you're like marching around in the dark with this child who insists on walking um <laughs> that was at least my experience you, and, got, you uh, got married and had a child very young yeah how and, did that happen very atypical for, How for did that a happen? Ivy League graduate. Yeah. How does a 
How is a baby made? I think that's a different podcast. No, but like um, you decided to get married and have a child quite young. Different, different podcast, I think. Okay. Um, but yes, I, but yes, they love my kids. My wife. Yes, I'm all for that, but uh, I don't, don't really. That's for our um, social conservatism podcast. Exactly. Yes. Liz, Liz Brunig <laughs> and I will be on discussing. podcast. Wonderful. Exactly. The, uh, yeah. So, and, and blogs were this new thing and Politico wanted a blogger to like write blogs, whatever those were. And, um, and had tried to hire, I think, Chris Saliza and Mark Ambender, who were in that era, the two dominant sort of bloggers of that moment. And, and then both of them said no. And then somebody said, well, there's this guy in New York who's sort of doing something similar and seems to like know how to use movable type. And so John Harris hired me to cover. And, and it's made, there was a certain logic because Rudy Giuliani and Hillary Clinton, who had been covering in mm-hmm. New York, were the likely nominees and were big central characters in it. And so, so I started writing a blog for Politico in the beginning of 07. And you brought a really great scampish energy to it. It was youthful and puckish. You, there was a irreverence to it that was very satisfying. It didn't feel like it was irreverent for its own sake, but there was certainly a sense in when you arrived at Politico that you were like, and this may have been just your personality, or it may have been working for Seth or the combination of those things. But you had a sort of devil may care attitude about stuff that you were not posturing around the normal shibboleths of political blogging at that point. Is that is well, that reasonable? Thank you. Well, I was definitely stealing a lot of the language and style from other political blogs. Mm-hmm. But I, also, I didn't like know anyone. Right. Like I wasn't seeing I was in New York. Very I, helpful. Was, I was working out of a work space that my wife ran for a while on East 17th and Ditmas Avenue. Like it was not, I wasn't running into people at dinner parties who I'd written about, which probably like made me lack empathy in a certain way, but also let me break scoop news. And then, and then a lot, a lot, a lot of my sources were like somebody's personal assistant who'd gotten CC'd on an email she shouldn't have been on, read the blog, thought it might be interesting. And so there wasn't that sort of, I think I didn't have as, because my sourcing wasn't as good basically. I didn't have much allegiance to my sources. It wasn't like I was worried that I'd screw, piss off the communications manager who like half the time wouldn't respond to my emails anyway. Totally. Ben, you left Politico for BuzzFeed before BuzzFeed had any sort of a news operation. In in retrospect, to me, it seems like a risky move. And I'm curious what your thinking was in taking on that risk like you you really built something at Politico and you became what you just described was I didn't know anybody I didn't really have sources certainly by the time you left Politico like you were a guy who had a caricature and who people knew and you did have sources and you were somebody like what what was your thinking about making the leap I mean I guess I'd like really spent most of my career already sort of on the internet and kind of like swimming with the trying to kind of swim with the tides of where the internet was going and if you were writing a blog in like 2010, you could just feel all the energy just sucked out of it by Twitter. Now, some of the, tra- the traffic kind of flatlined, but but didn't go away exactly. But like all your sources and all your all the information was being traded on Twitter. What you wanted to do was have a link go viral on Twitter. And and the notion the blog had been such a destination for people. Like there was a period where if I didn't like write anything for a few hours, people would email me and ask if I was dead. And like which was, you know, you felt really needed. And that kind of went away. And you just feel all the energy was on Twitter. And so when Jonah Peretti approached me in 2011 with the idea that like, we're gonna, that he had already really built this website with the idea that like the front page didn't matter, which was really a strange idea back then, but that all your traffic was gonna come from social media. And which to me meant like, wow, what if Twitter was the front page of your website? What if you just tweet, treated Twitter as the front page, tried to do journalism and break news that was not already on Twitter. That felt like a huge opening. Like it felt really logical. And so that was, and that was the idea. And there was a period around then, right around then when like, it was just so like the gap between people who could, who, who could, or it's not like it's that hard, but who had, were in the habit of doing reporting and people who were chattering and having, raising interesting questions on Twitter was really wide. So somebody would say like, Israel would bomb something in Syria. And people would be tweeting, I wonder what Hezbollah thinks. And it's like, I don't know, like they have a spokesman. You can call him on WhatsApp. Like, let's see what Hezbollah thinks. Like, you don't have to sort of, and and Twitter was like this machine for kind of like raising questions, but wasn't yet good at answering them. And so I think the way I saw it was you could have a news organization that was essentially doing that. 
that brings to an end the nice, warm, fuzzy portion of our interview. Uh, this signal, I can't hear you. What? It's breaking up. I think I'm breaking listening. Up. It's breaking up. Sorry. Up. <laughs> uh, no then my next question is, what what is BuzzFeed now? How would you describe it? You know, it is what it's, I mean, it is what it's, what it was then. It's a news organization. It's a media company that's trying, you know, that is built for the internet, right? That's then that has had to change a million different, a few times along the way to stay, to sort of stay with that. Still has a pretty strong news organization in there. Also, like it's the, I just bought like a ton of Christmas presents there because it's a great place. It's like a huge part of its business now is this. You could like sift that out, like through the detritus of you know whatever else is there i think that may be what you consider the detritus it was like 93 (laughs) inexpensive (laughs) gifts for your surly for surly teenage girls you know that sort of stuff who Uh, doesn't need that yes yeah uh, like i don't know i i get a lot of value out of that out of what you consider the detritus i always did i think so i don't know ipo you know hasn't gone so great but uh curious whether you have sold your stock and or whether you ran into this glitch that the other employees had that like prevented them from selling their shares. And they were like, oh, uh, yeah, sorry, you got screwed. Uh, we can't do anything about that. You know, this is really one where I got to like defer to the spokeswoman for the New York Times and I can send you her way if you want. But it's just like, I'm really trying carefully to do what my employer tells me on this and I don't want to get ahead of them. Understood. Um, They're always extraordinarily helpful when I approach them with questions from the Washington Free Beacon. So so we'll let you know what they say. I can let our listeners know. I can certainly uh, see the appeal. And people were a little confounded. I I think Eliana's question about your going to BuzzFeed originally echoed this. People were confounded. Why would a person Politico is finally like respected? Why are you going to I can has cheeseburger to do news? (laughs) Right. Yep. Totally. Totally. Remember, yeah. I can has cheeseburger. Oh my God. That's a, <laughs> I mean, here, this is, let me just like in, in, in partial, def, in just a point about BuzzFeed worth making because well, I no, can has cheeseburger. No, no, no. But it just reminds me of this. There were so many websites back then that were in that kind of coming out of that web culture thing yes. and love BuzzFeed or hate it. It's almost the only one that still exists. Oh, it's there, kind of an it, interesting thing. And I, is, my theory is it's because they chose to do news. But it's, I, I think case. that has a lot to do with it. And I can has cheeseburger missed a huge opportunity to hire you to run its news operation. Clearly. But, the reality, though, is that that was also freeing. I can see the appeal. And I saw it at the time when people were scratching their heads about it, which is and I think this is I've seen this through your career, which is you like to confound convention and you like to take chances and you like to push it. And that's a, a, a startup is a place to do that, right? Yeah, the Politico had been that. I'm still kind of right. was that five years in. Like it wasn't that respectable. And there's a sort of disadvantage to being respectable when you're a reporter because like who cares what your image is in a way, right? That's certainly our story. view with the free beacon bed. Yeah, the free beacon is kind of an extreme embodiment of this. This actually leads right into my next question, which is which outlets do you think are poorly suited to survive today and why? You know, we've seen so many outlets come and go like Mike and now we have now this yesteryears and and which do you think are well suited to prosper? You know, I wish I really I knew. I think it's a really kind of confusing moment and I don't feel really confident about this. I mean, I, part of it is that there's so many interesting things happening right now, like all like crypto and Substack, and there are things that are new this year that are interesting. That said, there are still these huge secular trends, like print is still dying, like been dying for 20 years, still dying, still the main thing happening among, you know, reporters who have jobs in America is that they are losing their jobs at print outlets that are being bought by these kind of vulture hedge funds. And so I think these trend, these big trends, which are the decline of print, the sort of like collapse of local and the sort of centralization around the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Journal, these huge few outlets are by far the biggest things happening. And then it's like interesting to look at what's happening in, you know, growing, like what's happening in the cracks in the sidewalk. And I think a lot of that is, you know, individuals can command, this is true across media, right? It's true in music and entertainment more than in journalism. But I think the question of like, you know, what, at what point do sort of individual journalists sort of extract their value versus working for a big company and have a direct connection to their audience feels like a 
a really major trend. I don't know. I think, the, but I think there's also sort of a swing of the pendulum that the subscription model that, the, you know, that in different ways, everyone from Fox News to the New York Times to CNN to, you know, is, is wedded to, which is to say that you're trying to get people to come back and back, you know, has left space, you know, tends to pull you toward a kind of journalism that tells your audience what they want to hear. And I think there's probably, and, and leave space for that, for people who aren't looking for that. Is the tendency, this is something that I'm exploring a lot these days. So I may be, confirmation bias may be a thing here. But I feel like there is a legitimate trend, and you've written about this and you've talked about this, that on some issues, it's not that, but you, you have cautioned against, you have been a voice to caution against what people call both sidesism sometimes, that sometimes there isn't really a, a both sides. But there also seems to be a tendency for people to use that to affirm and cosset and coddle their readers or viewers, right? That if we are making subjective judgments about how many sides need to be included here and what balance represents, that it gets too easy. And this was certainly my experience at Fox, uh, and you can see it a lot of places. It's only too easy to give people what they want all the time. Yeah, I mean, I told you know, that's the thing. Like, there aren't both sides to every story is really true. And the reflex to seek both sides for every story leads you to a lot of really dumb places. But some stories broke three hours ago. You don't really know what the hell is going on. And you, and you have to, I mean, it's, it's not so much like both sides. It's just some level of humility that you haven't figured out what the hell is happening because something happened a couple, you know, 20 minutes ago. And like, it may be a person who you think is a bad person in the middle of it, but there's a set of factual claims that are reportable and haven't been reported out yet. And, and, and it's almost, it's almost always the story that you most deep in your heart, you see it and you just like immediately know it's true. Cause it confirms everything you always believed exactly. about the world that is like definitely false. Yes. Like I think like, it's almost like I, when I look at Twitter, it's like any story that I really think is great is always wrong. So yeah, too good. To, <laughs> like whatever too you're good most, to... yeah, too good to check. Exactly. Whatever you're like most <clears throat> impelled to hit retweet on is the one that is falsest. And, and we see, and we see it in all kinds of stories these days. You wrote a beautiful piece about Brandon and the, the let's going of Brandon. And it was a uh, headline, Brandon just wants to drive his race car. And you went down uh, to Woodford, Virginia and hung out uh, with Brandon Brown, who inadvertently, and you mentioned this before about stories that get sucked into politics. Here's a triple car race guy. All he wants to do is drive his car. And because people were shouting blank Joe Biden and the reporter who was covering the race that uh, Brandon had once said, well, I think they're chanting, chanting, let's go, Brandon. And then it turned into this whole thing. I want to read the uh, your your summation here. Your it's, I recommend the piece to everybody, but I want to read your summation. I am usually a pretty controversial interviewer, and I take pleasure in asking awkward questions. Accurate. When Mr. Brown told me in the pace cars I was nearly losing my lunch, I love every minute of it. I could relate. He seemed resigned to the ritual of being interviewed by a newspaper reporter, and I think would have sat there with me by the track for quite a while more navigating subjects he's never really thought about. We never got that far. It just didn't seem fair. I found myself thinking that I would prefer to live in a country that permits race car drivers, actors, and musicians to avoid being grilled by people like me, and I made a quick exit. Beautifully turned, and also an expression of real humility, right? An expression of a, of a reporter in a place who had the power, had the moment that you could have, you could have turned this into something that would have been more clickable, more trendier, it would have been, it could, could have landed with a bigger boom, but you walked away from it. Is that something that you would have done 10 years ago? Huh, prob probably not. I, I did wonder why, I mean, of all the reporters, why they wound up calling me. Um, but yeah, you know, I don't know. I think it's something that everybody is sort of like, we've all kind of grown up with this weird social media moment. And I think everyone is a little exhausted by the kind of milkshake ducking of utterly yeah. random people who, and I think, you know, there are differences, right? Like if an actor or an athlete decides they want to, insert themselves into politics or like that's certainly their choice and i and i don't think it's unfair to criticize them or right. you know argue with them it's the thing where somebody who really just is it you know really didn't choose to or try or, or is it was really trying to withdraw from the space that 
it just seems like we should, we have better things to do. And then also just a lot of these folks, like, guess what? They have incredibly half-baked opinions on things that they haven't thought hard about. Mm-hmm. Well, it was very well done. That was a, a great piece. Thank you. You're so, you're like the good cop here. <laughs> I was going to say, okay, next up steel dossier. Like that was really nice and everything, but Ben, can you talk us through your decision to publish the steel dossier? It's gotten a lot of criticism in my view, actually unjustified from the right, but what, what was the kind of thinking? What was your thinking before throwing that up on Buzzfeed news? Yeah, I th- I'd be happy to. And I, you know, it's funny. I hate like being defensive or feeling defensive. And so, and I actually do feel defensive about this. Like, I think it was the right call and I want to defend it, but I, I like don't, but I understand why people don't disagree. But I think a lot of it is if you, if you pull away back and you say, is it, would, do we wish the steel dossier never existed or if it existed, no one ever looked at it? Probably, right? Maybe that seems reasonable. And, but obviously that's not the kind of decision you make. Like we were the, in the moment that I was, that we were in, in the moment that we were in it, I think it was really not only it was really obvious that it was the right call. And I think it was also a case in which the kind of legacy media did something which they often do, which is kind of deplore whatever weird internet outlet has published a thing while simultaneously immediately taking advantage right. of the fact that it's public. That said, I mean, so we had had the dossier, not not for as long as places like the Times and the Post, which I think got it in I August I just want to make sure, I'm going to stop you really quick. Just make sure you tell us why it was obviously the right call. Yeah, well. I'll okay. get there. Just, just see him. My defensiveness is scrambling my, uh, <laughs> um, the, um, but so a number of outlets got it in, and this has all been come out in various legal proceedings. And I believe August from Fusion GPS, which was shot up uh, a consulting firm, sort of Apo research that was what Steele was working with. And, and, you know, I, I actually haven't seen, there's a whole world of conspiracy theories around it this, to say that they thought it was false or knew it was false. I haven't seen any evidence of that. Seems like they thought it was true and were freaked out by it and were shopping it to reporters because they thought it would, because they thought it was. I mean, funny. I don't think they cared one way or the other. Like they, it was serving their client and like, okay. Okay. So we have, you know, we're both trying to look inside their hearts. Yeah. Who knows? There, there wasn't, but there's no, but, there's, but I don't think there's any particular evidence that the people involved or strong evidence thought it was false. But in any case, who cares what they thought? They market it to, they, they sort of share it with these reporters on the condition that those reporters don't share it, don't talk about it, anonymity, all those things. And reporters do what they're supposed to do, which is try to run down the specific allegations about, you know, gross things happening in the Ritz-Carlton Moscow, Michael Cohen visiting Prague. And we get it substantially later in December and do the same thing. We sent a reporter to Prague who went around to like dozens of hotels asking them if Michael Cohen had stayed. One of the things I learned was that hotels will just, if you're like a friendly young journalist and you go to the desk of a hotel and seem like you know what you're doing and say, hi, has someone so stayed at this hotel? I think like 62 of the 63 hotels, the clerk was like, let me check for you and looked in the book, which they're not supposed to do. But anyway, you should always stay under an assumed name in a hotel, obviously. So these are these 62 hotels, you'd say, no, Michael, no, Michael Cohen here. And so we, like a lot of other outlets, we're thinking like, this isn't, you know, we, we haven't been able to either, either to stand up or to knock it down. There was a lot of stuff that had been, there's also a lot of stuff about the Russian campaign to support Trump that was uncontested, like that they were doing stuff for Bernie Sanders on the internet to stoke division between Sanders people and Clinton people. At this point, totally uncontroversial. But, and so, but we hadn't really been able to either stand up or knock down much of it. And that, at, at which point it becomes clear that like, it's not just like a weird set of allegations in your inbox. It's a document that is circulating at the highest levels in Washington and affecting people's behavior. Like John McCain in early 2017 is, is keeping his distance from Trump in, in a way that is hard to explain without the dossier, actually. You know, and then and a number, and you just the people who have seen it are acting based on the fact that they've seen it. They think it might be true. And you're not allowed to use it to try to explain their behavior to your audience, which is weird. At which, and, then, and, then, and there are some other sort of bits of that. But basically, at that point, CNN reports that there is this document that it's considered credible by the U.S. intelligence community, that it says that the president has been compromised, but we're not going to show that it's been briefed to both presidents, to Trump and to, and to, and to um, Obama. 
but that's it. We're not going to tell you anymore. It's like, you know, I have in my hand a document with a bunch of communists. You can't see the document. And that's the point at which it seemed to me obvious. Like before that, there was a case to be made to publish it, but also a strong case to not. I think after it's in, it's in circulation that there is this document claiming the president has been compromised. But by the way, we won't tell you what it is. We're going to say it's credible, but also not tell you what it is. I think at that point, it makes sense to publish it and sort of throw it open for people to evaluate and respond to rather than allow it to be this shadowy allegation that nobody can interact with. That's the point at which we publish it. And I mean, incidentally, there was no world where it wasn't, it didn't have to enter the public realm. That's not, an, that's not a reason, that's not an argument for doing it exactly. But I mean, if you think about that summer, like Adam Schiff and Devin Nunes are going at it that spring, you would have had to write articles saying these two very important congressmen are having a fight but to tell you what they're fighting about would be to burn your eyes out with this terrible document. So we're just going to ask you to trust us that they're having a fight. It's over something important, but we won't tell you what. Like, it's not a conceivable path for journalism. Why don't you think other news outlets publish this document? Well, because, I mean, there are, two, there are a few reasons. I mean, one is that they were under an agreement with Fusion GPS not to publish it. The one, most of the ones who had it, because they had gotten it from Fusion GPS and we had gotten it from a, through a side door. Another is because appropriately, you, you shouldn't, we get all sorts of crazy tips in our inboxes and we don't just go publishing them without reporting them out. And they've been trying to report them out as we had. I think other people probably would have come around to the same conclusion we did and published it, but we moved pretty fast. Is there criticism of your decision to publish it uh, that you think has been legitimate? Or and I think there's a lot too? of discussion of, was publishing this thing good for America? And I think there are a lot of people who thought it was and now thought it think it wasn't. People who thought it wasn't and now think it was. I think it's, and this is one of the weird things about our business. You just, that's not really a consideration. It's, you know, when you're publishing information, you don't know, yeah. it's hard to predict. This one, it was very hard to predict. The people and who... I, but I think that's a reasonable criticism. Um, I mean, you know, we wrote a, the article we wrote that we published it with said, this, you know, here, this is, this document has, is unverified and in fact contains some errors. There are reasons to be skeptical about it. The document, you know, traveled without that disclaimer. Could we have printed that disclaimer on top of every page or across every page? Maybe, you know, maybe something like that. I don't know. I mean, I think that's, that's something I think about sometimes is, is just the fact that the document, you know, we were pretty careful about how we wrote about it and how we published it. And the, Social media does always sort of remove things from that context. The, the people who were the, I, I assume the people who were the happiest that you published it were the hashtag Russiagate, hashtag impeach, hashtag resistance gang that was excited that it was out there. I assume those are the same people who over time as the effort did not pan out and came a cropper that they then looked back and realized it would have been better for their cause if what I guess would have happened, you say somebody else would have published it, I don't know, but what would have happened would have been that legacy news organizations would have nibbled at this. They would have done what basically the FBI did. They would have nibbled at it and used it in the ways that they wanted, but not use the things that they didn't want to and have just referred to it as basically the secret stash that they could pick from when they wanted to and ignore when they wanted to. Is that about right? Yeah, I mean, I think the other way of looking at it, right, is that just it raised expectations right. for what could what what bad thing Donald Trump could do that that even Donald Trump did not quite manage to reach. Right, and <laughs> and it gave people who wanted to dismiss all the questions about Russia a way to say it was all this document, it's it's a hoax, and to sort of chip into kind of. Um, you know, yeah, to kind of collapse the whole Russia story, which is a big, interesting story into this document. Like, I think when people look back at the 2016 campaign or when historians of intelligence write about the 21st, the 21st century, you know, Russia's dump of the DNC hack to WikiLeaks is going to be one of the great intelligence operations of world history, right? right? Like it was like, it was very important and meaningful. It's also unconnected to the dossier. And it's and so, but it was reasonable for people to ask questions about Trump and Russia. The answer is actually, I think BuzzFeed News actually wound up reporting a big part of the answer, which was that he was trying to develop this tower in Moscow 
and offering Putin the penthouse. And so he was being nice to Putin because he thought he was going to lose the presidency and wanted a real estate deal. That's actually like, to my read, a pretty decent interpretation. Of it fits. It's, it certainly fits the, the without, personality and the fact pattern. Without your needing crazy Russiagate stuff. So, but you know, you also, you don't know in advance any of this stuff. So. Matt Taibbi, many others have compared the Russiagate stuff to the Iraq war stuff and said that these are parallel failures of journalism in America. This is why they hate us. Da 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 da. da. How? And I'm, I'm not. I'm certainly not certain that they're right. But there must be a. I think there is a point in there. How bad was the damage done to the by the overselling and overhyping of Russia Gate stuff? How how serious a harm did that inflict? You know, I mean. I, I think the sort of this is why they hate us stuff. I mean, I think if we're talking about why conservatives dislike the mainstream media, I mean, Donald everyone Trump had a, or why no one tried to run an past, entire yes. campaign attacking the media right. like it, before this, like it wasn't not I think new. people have the cause and effect backward there and it wasn't new. But no, but I think there was lots of reporting that was, you know, that basically was like, we're, you know, felt like people were that was carrying its audience along with this great mystery of that felt that was structured to lead to this great reveal that never happened of why of Trump and Russia. And a lot of it was just, you know, I remember in like March of 17, we did a story about how Louise Mensch, if you remember her, oh, oh, yes. a sort of leading early <laughs> Russia gate promoter had accused like 273 people. I don't know the number right, but it was more than 200 of being Russian agents. <laughs> and we like just went through and like counted them and categorized them. I mean, it was bananas. And a lot of really lunatic stuff was being said. And it was, you know, it was telling, it was both sort of telling progressives what they wanted to hear. And and also for people who just thought there was just no way in the world Donald Trump could become president because that didn't match their idea of what America was. It was an explanation. There was a little birther, there, there was a little parallel to the birtherism stuff with Obama that he could be unprecedented, that it would just be magically go, the magically go away. Totally. I'm also reminded of, what Roger Ailes said about Glenn Beck, which is the problem with predicting the end of the world is that sooner or later you have to deliver. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Ben, uh, we're gonna get to the meta, meta, meta portion, which is like all of us who cover the media talk about media coverage. But one of the things I've been struck by is, and I'm exempting you from this, is the decline in media coverage. It's something I had so much fun doing when I was at National Review. But Brian Stelter, not to pick on him, but he seems to me to be a case study of this genre where he used to do like wonderful coverage of the mainstream media when he was at the New York Times. And now he kind of does this tendentious coverage of the right. And I'm curious, like, do you agree with this? Like, are there people doing good coverage of the mainstream media? And if so, like, who's doing the kind of good work of the sort you used to do at Politico? Who's who's not you? Huh? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't I don't want to be a media critic, critic, um, media, media, critic, critic. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think there's yeah, I think there's, I think there are people doing really good stuff, including, you know, Max Tanny, who's now Politico, Ben Mullen at the Journal, people breaking news. And I mean, you know, and I think. Yeah. And Brian breaks a lot of news. Like there's, you know, I mean, one thing is there's a huge media business story that you may, you and I perhaps are not massively interested in, but the, you know, the, the streaming wars for interest, which are not a political story, particularly Brian, Brian breaks a lot of news on that. It's very knowledgeable. I mean, but, and I think, but I think what you're, the question is how big a story, how big a share of the media story, you know, is the, the kind of Trump media. Mm-hmm. And, and Fox in particular is part of it. Like when you look back at this decade, I kind of think maybe that'll be the main story, right? And so I don't think it's necessarily crazy to treat it as the main story. And I wrestle with this week to week because it's, it can be kind of a predictable story. It can be hard to break news on. Like Fox tends to do what it does and be unabashed about it. And often the internal stuff isn't as interesting as you think because they're just kind of doing their, the talent is just doing their thing. And so, and yet, the sort of co-optation of this big chunk of politics by Trump, you know, particularly if he is reelected, we will look back and say that was for sure the biggest story in the country. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know, uh, you think, Chris. My joke is that the media criticism is the first refuge of the scoundrel. If you don't want to talk about the story, talk about the coverage of the story. The right is very good at this. Donald Trump has just murdered a baby harp seal with a club in front of the White House 
oh yeah, but what about the way the New York Times covered the clubbing of the baby harp seal? So there yeah, is totally. a lot There is a lot of, of media criticism as deflection. My Eliana's heard me say this, that I think Fox and CNN, Fox needs a channel called Fox CNN, in which Fox people just watch CNN and complain about it, like a Mystery Science Theater 3000 thing. And <laughs> it is, I, I, I call it a, a Mobius strip of BS where, and Jack Schaefer, I want to get your reaction to what Jack Schaefer said about cable news, which is it exists. Its audience is not huge. We don't have to care what they do all the time. You alluded to this with a lot of the insider coverage kind of stuff that is, as you, you described it, talent doing their thing. Shaver's point is, no, there's no critical viewers, right? Everybody who's watching agrees. No one is watching the criticism, right? So nobody's going, no Fox viewer or not a statistically significant number of Fox viewers are going to watch Sean Hannity, then read a Jack Schaefer critique of Sean Hannity and say, good point, Jack Schaefer. You really, I think you got him there. I'm, I'm reassessing. So basically what his point is, we should ignore it or ignore it a lot. What do you think about that? I mean, I sympathize with that. The numbers are small of people yeah. who watch these shows for real. And, and right. They, and, and so much of the reason they, the way they exist is being kind of processed by their enemies. That said, you know, the former president seems to have watched a lot of cable news and it was a pretty important demographic in being the president, the once and potential future president. And, um, and there are these institutions that employ a lot of politicians and political figures and commentators and pay a lot of money to a lot of people. And I do think that they occupy an, a, a place in American political life that is larger than their audience. And that, that you sort of have to make your peace with that. Like, it's definitely something that I have that I find annoying and wish and, and, and resist. I also think, you know, they aren't parallel. I think Fox is, is crazier than the mm -hmm. other two. Like, I think when you look at the coverage of the pandemic, like everybody has had really bad moments and been wrong about stuff. But I do think that on balance, Fox has done more damage, right? And, and I think when you, and there isn't like as, unhinged as I think some of MSNBC's Russiagate coverage was, I still think like you, you by and large, night by night, you're going to be less tethered to reality with Fox than with anything, than, than if you are just staring at TikTok all night. In a the, way that is pretty unusual. <laughs> and which is saying something. If the comparison is TikTok, I do think there is a difference also quantitatively, which is to say there is no media outlet, New York Times included, that has as much throw weight inside the Democratic Party as Fox does inside the Republican Party. The power yeah. of Fox and Republican primaries, the, so those 3 million viewers uh, are the vanguard of the Republican primary electorate. So there is another, yeah. I, think, I think arguing against Schaefer's position, uh, at least as it relates to Fox, is its, pow its power within the Republican Party is very significant. Yeah, and I think you're right, totally. And although it's power, I mean, is it all right? And there are other differences. Like it doesn't employ, it employs very few journalists who care about facts. Like you right. won fewer with your departure in a way that isn't true of, you know, CNN has a huge news gathering operation, which doesn't use quite as much as I would like, but does in fact have a bunch of people who are out calling sources and interacting with the world. And so does NBC and, and, News. And NBC News keeps MSNBC yeah, and honest not to a, a certain degree. Yeah. Yeah. And there's not a parallel sort of gravitational pull toward yeah. reality at Fox. Yeah, but, you know, but I think it's, it's sort of a complicated picture. The, uh, yeah, I mean, I do think, you know, the, I think the vaccine, I mean, I think if Trump's, I mean, I, you know, we also are very used to this world that you just described where based politics are sort of everything, right? And where like, if you can capture the most impassioned extreme voters in your party, you win. It's not the only possible world. And I do think it's interesting. It was interesting to see Trump just sort of like, you know, just sort of like leap into the picture as a, you know, 9,000 pound gorilla, like, you know, far to Ron DeSantis's left on vaccines. Yep. And suddenly, like, you can imagine a world where suddenly, like, Trump isolates a bunch of Newsmax fans off to his right flank and wins the primary that way. And, and for, you know, I mean, it's just sort of like a, I mean, I, I probably his sort of politics of, stolen election grievances I, uh, prevents that. But it, it's just, I think that these things are dynamic and could change. Yeah, 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 totally. 
I'm just like channeling Seth Lipsky. Listen to you guys over here for the sake of time. Not, not going <laughs> to like take issue with anything you guys have said, but, uh, <laughs> but Ben, I presume, I presume that you work at the New York times because you think it is influential. You know, I think of the times in the post as two of the most influential papers in the country. And I'm curious, like, how do you think the country's two major papers cover each other? Do you think the Post holds the Times accountable? Does the Times hold the Post to come accountable? Do they cover each other aggressively? I think in general, media reporting isn't aggressive enough. I mean, I think that, and I think you're starting to see the growth of like a little, uh, there, I think there's a little bit of a vacuum around covering these institutions, which I don't know. I mean, when I started at BuzzFeed in 2012, I was like, let's not cover the Times. It's not that relevant. Like most of its problems are about like, how, you know, is it going to survive or the, how many layoffs are they doing? What's happening with the paywall? Like boring decline problem, like the same reason that you don't cover ABC news much. Cause it's just like, it's the Burn. Titanic. It hit the iceberg, <laughs> which way, like which way is broadcast news going to wind up going underwater? Like it's not that interesting a story. And so I think that in a way that coverage, like that had been very intense in the early aughts, kind of like waned and that there's a big opening. For, for more aggressive coverage. Totally you see, you know, agree. Gabriel I... Snyder started this little thing called Off the Record that just covers the hell out of the Times. There's <laughs> a newsletter and is doing a pretty good job. I think it's a good story. I, mean, I, I think there's space. I mean, I, it, and I like covering the Times in general and think it's a good story. And they have no, nobody's at all, it, like I have free reign to in my job, but obviously it's incredibly weird and complicated to cover the person who's paying your bills. And that's never totally. going to be that's never going to be unbiased or you can't, that's not I mean, like, fundamentally Paul a Forey, good model. You know, get on it. Like I, if I were yeah. him, I would just like delight in torturing you, you guys. Uh, you would if you were him. That is true. But you're, but you're a sadist. Would. So, um, you know. I mean, to me, like the Times and the Post, like they matter because they tell us what's happening at our country's elite cultural institutions, which inevitably like bleeds down. But I mean, do you think... Does the media even matter? Like, if so, when does it matter and why does it matter? To me, in like thinking about this question, I was like, well, Ben wrote this great story about Aussie media. And like, clearly, I mean, that left that left a mark. Like, obviously, that's a great example of when it matters. But when I look at coverage of like the Biden administration, you know, the media can write as many glowing profiles of Joe Biden as it wants or as many nasty profiles of Joe Manchin. And like, it doesn't really matter. But what are what are your thoughts on like when when it matters and when it doesn't? Yeah, I think that's such a good point. I mean, I think that we who think about media all day and lots of people on Twitter just vastly overestimate how much it matters and think that, you know, whether or not Donald Trump is reelected is going to be it's mad that it matters a lot how the whether the whether a media that is talking largely to people who hate him says he's really bad or whether he's a fascist. I mean, I think it's just not clear how much impact that stuff has. Not that, which isn't to say you should or shouldn't do it. Right. I mean, I, I guess I, I you know, I kind of go back to the scoops thing. Like you want to, you want to tell people something they didn't know. And that's often what changes things and can be sort of incontrovertible, not whether someone is a good guy or a bad guy, but just like, here is a thing that you did not know and you now have to grapple with about the world. I have two really quick questions. I'm getting you out of here in the next five minutes. Who wields power at the New York Times and why? Like, really quick. And and then I'm curious, like, where did you personally land on on pushing Donald McNeil out the door versus like how the paper handled it? Let's see. Wow, you're really trying to get me fired here. Real quick, answer these Just real quick. Really quick. That could end so your career. I, I do and then, think, ben, like, we're I'm gonna, generally we're like, edit this whole thing and then put this at the top of the interview. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, I do generally feel like, I mean, I'm obviously like they pay my salary, right? Like I'm not an unbiased observer here. And so you should take everything I say with with a couple of grains of salt. Totally, we way. don't really care what you um, say. Good, good. You'll just <laughs> re-edit it to make it sound as bad as possible. The on the first thing you know i mean i guess one of the things that has surprised me about the times and it's true of any big institution is it has a really strong internal culture right like like there's it's not a place where the top editor says do this and the place pivots and does this it's a place where you have a lot of and journalism in a weird way has always been like journalism's kind of a guild and so you sort of tell journalists what to do and they're like, well, I'll go back to the guild hall and like discuss it with my friends and come back to you and tell you whether I will in fact do the thing, boss. 
which I certainly found when I was the boss. It's like people just like won't do the thing you ask them to do. And that's certainly that's true of all good news organizations, actually. So I don't know. I think it's a very like uh, the report of the journalists, like the reporters on beats have a lot of power and do a lot of determining of what they're doing, I think. But I'd also say like, like every other institution in America, it's and in the world, it's just it's like another institution living in the same culture as everybody else. And so it's not sort of above it or outside it or impermeable to it. And a lot of the sort of same arguments that are kind of like flowing through the culture or flowing through that list. Also, of course, Dean Beckett is like a, everything he does is correct. And he, and, and every, and I do exactly what he tells me and all he's of both, my better columns for his ideas and my worst ones. But when I divide, Dean, you should have um, responded to he's my both a powerful man and a handsome man. When Nicole Hannah Jones docks stuff. He, he is in fact, I think, a very, I think, I think leading an institution like that is an ex, extremely oh, sure. hard job. I can't even imagine. Which he does, she does quite well. On the Donald McNeil thing, I guess one of the things that I think, and maybe I'll just talk in general terms here about institutions, is that like when there is, a, when there was, was sort of an internal uproar about, you know, like social, internal social media driven uproar about race, I think management often like races to do the, rushes to do the thing that they kind of think their employees want when maybe like if you saw the letter from black employees about McNeil, it said, we don't think he should be fired, for instance. And I don't actually think there was a huge internal appetite for pushing him out in a strange way. And that I do think there was a moment when broadly management was kind of, I don't know. I think like, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I think firing people is not usually the right thing to do. Lightning round. So like first thing that comes to your mind the on these round. three <laughs> questions. Yeah. Uh, what is the story you're most pissed a competitor got that you're most jealous of? Oh, career? man, I mean, it happens constantly. The uh, actually, speaking of aggressive coverage of other institutions, my memory only goes back about a week. So these will, of course, be stories <laughs> from December. But Ben Mullen had a great story about the decline in subscriptions at the Washington Post. Mm, and it was good. And, and I oh, think there's something good. there's something really there's something real happening there in the Post and probably the Times, although I actually don't know the, what their subscription numbers look like are facing kind of deeper challenges, I think, probably than people realize. We will like that in the show notes. Your favorite interview that you've ever done? Oh, man. Again, a short memory, but I, I mean, maybe it was driving around with Brandon. It wasn't an interview, but I'd never been in a race car with a race car driver before. Ben has like, pretty cool. the, apparently has the memory of like a, a ladybug. <laughs> I do. I think it's actually an, an asset, right? It you is. just like don't, because you don't get, you don't get stuck defending things you previously wrote because you actually don't remember them. I, I did have something where some where I wrote a piece and someone was like, you know, you realize that you absolutely you're contradicting something. This is why I can't really be an opinion columnist and I have to report that I was like contra. I had some, made some, you know, piercing observation six months earlier and then written made another piercing observation six months later that totally contradicted the first one. Let me tell and you. I was like, well, like, what Consistent- do you want me to do? Like. You don't want to be consistent. There's no requirement for success in opinion journalism. I, I promise really? you that right now, sir. <laughs> good, good. Because I think it's, <laughs> I think in journal in in reporting, it's like consistency is really a um dangerous if yes, you feel like you need so. to defend your previous position. Like maybe you were wrong or things changed. Last one is the story you're most proud of. Yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't know favorite children. I don't. Okay. I, I don't really think that way. They're all wrapping fish. <laughs> hey, amen. Uh, amen. It is 11.10. I said I would get you out of here by 11.10. Ben, thank you so much for doing this. We're yeah, so thank you so much. You're very generous with your time. Really appreciate thank it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Good to see you.